And I pray now, Lord, that as we come to this word from you, as we begin a new series in this uh, book called Malachi in the Bible, that you would speak to us. And maybe more importantly, there is never an absent of your voice. There is only as an absent of our attentiveness to your voice. So I pray that you would make us attentive this morning to hear from you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. Let me add my exceptionally warm welcome to you this morning, to Matt. Uh, really, really delighted to have you here, um, particularly if you're new or here for the first time. Um, I'm really delighted that you're here. Oh, you two lovely ladies. Yep, sorry, you don't have to stay there for the whole time. That would be interesting for all of us, wouldn't it? Uh, should we give them a round of applause? They were fantastic. open it up if it's one of the church's Bible it's on page 960 it's in the very last part of the Old Testament the oldest part of the Bible called Malachi page 960 if you don't have a Bible that's fine because I'll always read these things but if you do then it will be brief Malachi the very end of the old part of the Bible the Old Testament and it's on page 960. And if you want a Bible at home and you don't have one, or you don't have one you find easy to read, then do take one of the church's Bibles um, here. Agnes, you're, if you want a Bible now, Agnes has one. So if you haven't got one, you'd like one on your lap, and just wave a hand in the air, and that would be great. We're starting this series in this book called Malachi. It's going to take us about two or three months to work our way through it. And if you wanted a text for this morning, a sentence for this morning, it's chapter one and the beginning of sentence two. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. That is good to hear, isn't it? Halfway through the year, almost, I'm starting to flag. I need to hear God say to me, Alex, I've loved you. It's even more striking when we realise that the name Malachi, we've got a Malachi in the church, which is fantastic. The name Malachi means God's messenger. Quite literally, God's heart bringer. The one who brings God's heart. It's one of my favourite names in the Bible. It was right up there with Hannah and I's list of names, but Hannah has been to rights. Uh, beautiful name. The one who brings God's heart. What is God's heart? I have loved you, says the Lord. Wherever you are on your faith journey, whatever your understanding of Jesus is today, whatever life realities you are experiencing, <coughs> I have loved you. Straight from God's heart. Straight to your heart. I have loved you, I've loved you, says the Lord. And through the rest of chapter 1, there's a number of images of God's love for us. It's like a diamond, it's many faceted and each one as beautiful as the other. For example, in sentence 6, God says, I am a father. So he loves us like a father loves a child, like a father loves his little girl or his big boy or whoever it might be. He loves us like a parent does. Some of you know that I spent the first couple of my years living in Israel. Until I was about two or three or something like that, we lived in Tel Aviv. My dad worked for the Foreign Office. Uh, it turns out uh, the, the uh, 
25-year lag rule time has passed. Turns out it's involved in all sorts of dubious stuff while it's in Tel Aviv. That's now in the public domain. It's quite exciting. It's like 007. You never believe it. You met it. But I grew up until I was about two or three in Israel. And so most of my English words were paralleled with Hebrew words. I spoke them both equally badly as a two or three-year-old. I went to Hebrew kindergarten. And there is this wonderful little video of my brother and I. My brother's five. I'm about two or three. Charging around the garden in Tel Aviv, snot encrusted down my face, my lips doing the thing that all of us do, nappy somewhere around my knees, and out of my little voice, I'm shouting up to my dad, giggling away as he chased us around the garden, Abba, 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 Abba. It's the Hebrew word for daddy, papa. It's a tender, gentle word. And friends, shockingly, you may not know this, in the Bible we are invited to call God the creator of the universe, Abba. To lift up, oh dear, to, to lift up our arms to God. Uh, doesn't make sense anymore, we've got something to play. We're invited to lift our arms up to God like a little toddler and to say, Daddy, 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 Daddy. He loves us like a father loves his little boy or his little girl. But then there's another image in sentence six there as well. God says, I am a master. He doesn't just love us like a father, passionate and tender and strong. He loves us like a master loves a servant, a good master who cares for their servants, protects them, provides for them, looks after them, gives them what they need when they need it, loves them in that very practical, protective and providing way. A little bit like Downton Abbey. You Downton Abbey fans? It's kind of coming down, it's down slope in popularity, but it's still pretty popular, isn't it? It's kind of like whatever the Lord and Lady are called, I forget what they are now, but whatever it is, like Granthams or something, isn't it? I don't remember. But it's kind of like their relationship with most of their servants, isn't it? Protects them and cares for them. They are good masters. And they love their servants. So it is with us and God. Not just as he is a father, our Abba, Daddy, tender and close. But he's a master who, who cares for us through protection and provision and guardianship. But then, thirdly, sentence 14, halfway through, I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. A father who loves us, a master who loves us, but now a king who loves us. I was shocked to discover that our own queen in England is 90 at her next birthday, 90 years old. She's an impressive lady, isn't she? Without doubt, she's going to go down, whatever you feel about the monarchy and whether it's right or wrong politically, without doubt, I think, across the nation and across the world, she's going to go down as one of the greatest monarchs who has ever lived. I'm also amazed by her physical robustness at 90 years old, what she manages to do. I think what marks her out as such an astounding king is she takes her authority and she takes her wealth and she takes her power and she serves her people, doesn't she? You may disagree with me or not. But certainly that is the kind of king that God is. He loves us as a king should, which means he takes his authority and he takes his position and he serves us, doesn't he? And he benefits us. And he loves us and he guards us. That's why Jesus is called the servant king. And then the last of these four images of love. What does it mean that I have loved you, says the Lord? It's a father 
reaching up to his daughter's outstretched, snotty arms, going, I love you, child. It's the love of a master to a servant, protection and providing. You're in my domain. You're under my sphere of responsibility. I will protect you, says the master to his servant. It's the love of the king to his people, serving his authority, his power, given over to benefit us. And then lastly, chapter 2, sentence 5. It's slightly hidden in the language. It says this, My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. Now the word covenant in the Bible, that language, is the language of marriage, or of deep, deep committed friendship. They're both massively more than just a legal piece of paper, aren't they? When you get married, it is enormously more than just the legal contract that you're required to sign. But it's also more than simply a relationship where you say to one another, in a kind of hidden secret way, you whisper a sweet nothing into their ear, I love you. It's much more than both those things, though it is those things, isn't it? It is a covenant. It is bound together before God in an unfailing, unbroken commitment. The Bible talks about friendship with that language. Now, our culture has lost that enormously. Our friendships are fickle and based on Facebook, aren't they? But friendship should be a covenant. I will not leave you or forsake you. And one particular magnification of friendship is marriage. It's an intense friendship. It's a sharing of a fullness, isn't it? in an unfailing, faithful, committed relationship. And for those of us who have had marriages that have not lived up to that expectation, us more than anyone would want to say, no, marriage should be covenant. God says, my love to you has that covenant quality. It's the love of a husband to a wife, of partners together. It is the commitment of friends. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I will be faithful. I will be unfailing. I will be committed. I have loved you, says the Lord. I've loved you, says your Abba Father in heaven. I've loved you, says your good master who cares for you. I have loved you, says your great king who serves you. I love you, says your husband. I love you, says the Lord. Now, if you're anything like me, that sounds like pretty good news, doesn't it? Like you think Malachi, the bringer of God's heart, God's messenger, got a pretty good job here, didn't he? He got to stand up and say, I, the Lord says, I have loved you. And so you, like me, might be a bit surprised to discover... <coughs> A word that Malachi uses in sentence one. So look at your Bibles again if you've got them there. Just that preceding sentence. My translation says, A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel, the particular nation at the time, through Malachi, the bringer of God's heart. That little word, a prophecy, in English, though, is the Hebrew word, a burden. A weight. So my question as I discovered that was, well, why is a message of God's love, is the message of a father who loves you and a husband who loves you, why is that message a burden? Now, burden, I think, can mean one of two things, and I think it means both here, actually, is how Malachi is understanding it. A burden can be something that is, is weighty and substantial 
and solid and kind of brings a gravitas, a new gravity into your life. And good news can be that kind of burden, can't it? We, uh, this week just gone for half term, we spent last long weekend up in Edinburgh, which was great. Coming back, three hours, 50 minutes, Stafford to Edinburgh coming back. Don't, don't Google the mileage if you don't mind. But that's good time, isn't it? Because the maths might not quite work. But it, that, it's not far, is it, Edinburgh? But while we were up there, we, we heard a couple of kind of good news things. One lady we went to visit, we knew from our time uh, overseas. She's back in, in Scotland. And she was able to tell us later that day that her eldest son had got engaged. That's good news, isn't it? But it's the kind of good news that has a burden to it, a gravitas. There's now a new centre of gravity introduced into that young couple's life, isn't it? And the orbits of the planets of their life now shift because of that new weight, that new gravitas has been introduced. So their spending habits and their eating habits and their going out habits and their living habits are all going to shift because of this burden of good news, I'm going to get married. Does that make sense? Or just this weekend, we heard some more good news, which is one of our siblings are going to have another, another child. The boys are going to have another cousin sometime near Christmas. Great news, isn't it? But it's good news that is burdensome in the sense that it introduces another centre point of gravity into their life. Suddenly, their spending patterns, they're, they're going to move house to create space for it. That new gravitas introduced shifts how their life orbits. I said to my brother when I texted him back, that's new sleeping patterns as well, isn't it? Because good news can have that kind of burden too, can't it? And I think that's certainly what Malachi, as we'll see over the next few weeks, is thinking about. The love of God and perceiving how much God loves us, unconditional, unmerited, undeniable, introduces a new centre of gravity into our lives. So the orbits of our planets, our money <coughs> and our relationships and how we conduct ourselves, all their orbits shift because there is a new gravity introduced into what was there. Does that make sense? So we're going to discover that in the next few weeks, why it's a burden in that sense. But the second way a message can be a burden, can burden us, is when it is ignored or opposed, or spurned, when good news is not received as good news. So for example, if a pregnancy was announced, but actually everyone was distressed by that, disappointed by that, felt it wasn't an appropriate time in someone's stage of life, that can be a burden. It can be good news that is not received as good news. Or a young couple get engaged, but their parents object to their choice of life partner and fight to see that relationship pulled apart. These are real realities, aren't they, friends? That can be a burden. Good news that is not received or perceived as good news. And here in Malachi, that second reality is definitely the case. Look again at sentence two, if you've got a Bible there. God has just said, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Do you see that there? Their response is to say, but how have you loved us? Now that is a relationship destroyer, isn't it? Gentlemen, if you're married, just as a word of advice, or if you're wooing a, a young lady, and she says to you, I, I, I love you, don't turn around to her and ask for the evidence. 
Don't turn around and say, how, how exactly have you loved me? It doesn't work in a relationship, does it? It's not going to work. Some of you younger guys, it's not a good thing to do. Or imagine a, a teenage girl in that stereotypical, I, I don't know, I probably never will know with any boys, whether, whether it's true or not. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I had two younger sisters. Oh, it was like war zone, Iraq, nothing compared to anyway. But imagine a teenage girl and her mum is trying to calm her. She's in a bit of a tears. And her mum says, I love you. Look, I love you. She bitterly spits back. How do you love me? Last week you didn't let me stay out till midnight. You just hate me. Yeah, that's my sister. Brilliant impression of her. <laughs> it's a real spurning of something, isn't it? Like a toddler sitting in their dad's lap and the dad tenderly going, I love you, and the toddler smacking him round the face. One of the funniest moments I ever had with Isaac when Isaac was much younger. Isaac told me he had something to tell me. He said, Dad, I've got something to tell you. This is an aside. I just remembered it. I said, hit me with it. So he went, smack! <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Now, they're spurning God's love. How have you loved us? <coughs> the reason, I think, is because the crushing cloud of their circumstances at that point in their life is blinding them to the blazing beauty of God's love. A little bit like when we go hiking up a mountain. And when we get to the top, the cloud cover has descended so thickly we cannot see that glorious view that we know is there. So the crushing cloud of our circumstances can descend to such an extent we are blind to the blazing beauty of God's love. The view is still there, we just cannot see it because the cloud has come. For them at their point in history, the nation of Israel as it was, They've just come out of 70 years of exile. Two great men, Ezra and Nehemiah, have led them out of being an enslaved nation to Babylon, back to their home nation, their homeland of Israel. And there's a whole sequence of promises that God had made over that 70 years that they were in exile, which at this point, they're looking around and saying, God, you have not kept your promise. So, for example, Haggai, Habakkuk, these are all people in the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you can look them up in the index later on. Those two individuals, Habakkuk and, or Habakkuk, as our boys like it, and Haggai, had promised there'd be a glorious temple that would be the centre of God's presence on the world. And yet, when Nehemiah had rebuilt the temple, the older generation had wept with sadness because it was so pathetic compared to that original temple that had been destroyed. Another one of their contemporaries, Zechariah, promised an incredible king who had established them as a global superpower and yet their kings were shoddy and rough. They were a tiny little backwater state, less than 200,000 people pushed around in the checkerboard of global politics. And a chap called Obadiah, he promised them total and utter freedom and yet the reality was they were pretty much dictated to by the other powers that surrounded them. And so when God says to them, I have loved you, they look around and they go, the cloud cover of our circumstances, we cannot see your love. How have you loved us? How have you really loved me? And so I think if you're anything like me, that little question, how have you loved me, God? Actually, is a question that may appear on our lips, but certainly appears 
in our minds at some point, maybe right now, and maybe for quite a long period. Because we look around in the cloud cover of a relationship in our life which is causing us real distress or a lack of relationship we so long to have in our life but is absent. We cannot see the blazing beauty of God's love because it's just a cloud around us. How do you love me? Or perhaps it's money. Real challenge. Making ends meet. How have you loved me? Perhaps it's health. Mental or physical. Or health that's got to a point where you've lost someone you so love outside of what we call the natural rhythm of birth and death. Too young they were. How? Have you loved me? Do you know the tone? Do you know that response? I think many of us do, don't we? And so God, in his infinite patience, I think I'd lose it with one of my boys if I went down and said, I love you. And they turned back and went, how? I think I'd have to step out into the other room, at least for a few minutes, for my temper to calm. <coughs> Not God. He immediately responds. And what his response is, is to say, my child, when you deserve to be hated, I was the only one who loved you. My wife, when you deserve to be hated, I was the only one who loved you. My citizen, when you deserve to be hated, I was the only one who loved you. Look again at sentence two. See what he says here. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? And then God replies, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. God takes them way back into their past history. Esau was the, the man from which the nation of Israel eventually developed. And, uh, Jacob, sorry, was the man from which the nation of Israel ultimately developed. And his brother was called Esau. So God here is talking about two brothers way back in Israel's past. The point here is that Esau and Jacob, in every important way, were exactly the same. They were twins, not identical twins. Esau was big and hairy and a bit of a macho man, and Jacob was more slight, a mother's boy, cunning and sly. But they were equally cruel. They were equally harsh. They were equally horrid. They were equally deserving of God's hate. But God loved. You see, he says, when you deserve to be hated, when you deserve to be dismissed, when you deserve to feel a righteous anger at what you've done, I was the one who loved you and didn't treat you as you deserved. And then what God does here is to fast forward from those past brothers to the nations that they then formed. Esau was the father who, hundreds of years later, Edom, the nation, came out of. Jacob was the man who, hundreds of years later, Israel came out of. And this is what God says. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated, and I've turned his hill country into a wasteland, 
and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. And again, the same point, what was true about the brothers, is true about the nations. They both as nations ignored God. They both as nations turned their back on God. Israel's whole 70 years of exile they've just exited from was because they had refused to follow God and committed huge acts of injustice and cruelty. But God says, look, I love you, Israel, even when you deserved to be hated. God's answer is to say to us, and I'll show you in a moment how this parallels through into the New Testament, is when we say the question, God, how have you loved, loved me? It's to look not at the circumstances that cloud our life, but the heart of love that God has when he looks down on each and every human being, looks down on us and says, when you deserve to be hated, when you deserved to face rightful anger, when you've done so much folly and stupidness, at that point, I was the only one who loved you. When you were no longer loved by your family, and no longer loved by your wife, and no longer loved by your nation, and no longer loved by yourself, I love you. Keep a finger, if you would, if you'd be kind enough, in Malachi. Just keep it marked, because we'll go back there. And turn forward to Romans chapter 5. Because ultimately what the Bible teaches us is this great declaration that God loves us. Romans chapter 5 is on 1,132. Is this great love of God which comes to the undeserving. This great love of God that comes to the very ones who should be hated, this great love of God that is unconditional and undeserved and undeniable, this love of God which is for us when we are at our worst, this love of God reaches its greatest fulfilment in Jesus' death for us. Let me read Romans 5, sentence 6 to 10. This is what it says. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we save from God's wrath through him? For if we, while we were still God's enemies, were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Do you see the repeated phrase? Why we were still God's enemies. God loved us so much that Christ died for us. In fact, there's three kind of angles on it that Paul, who wrote this, brings. In verse 6, it's about our weakness. You see, at just the right time, why we were still powerless, <coughs> God loved us and died for us. Powerless to bring anything to God. Powerless to take a step towards him. Powerless to achieve anything good. We were so weak and so unable, and yet, what? Christ would die for us. Or look at verse 8. Now, just speaking personally for a moment, 
if there is any sentence in the Bible which swung me into full trust in Jesus. This was the hook on which I hung that swing. This is what took me over from one side to the other. This verse is what changed my mind about Jesus. <coughs> God demonstrates his own love for Alex in this. While Alex was still God's enemy, Christ what? Christ imprisoned me as I deserved. Christ turned his back on me as I deserved. Christ slaughtered me as I deserved. No. Christ did what? Christ died for me. My life is full of wonderful people. A family who love me. Friends who care for me. I am deeply privileged. I don't believe one of them would consciously die for me. But while I was not Christ's friend, and not his family, but his enemy, he died for me. How can I doubt that God loves me? I don't need to look at whether he loves me when I am lovable. Which doesn't happen often, if ever. I look at his love for me when, when I was his enemy. Not just powerless, weak and unable, but his enemy, unwilling, not even having an intention to be on his side. He loved me. And then verse 10. For while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That word reconciled is the opposite of the word lost, isn't it? So not only were we powerless in verse 6, unable, not having the strength to move towards God. Not only were we his enemies in verse 8, unwilling to even make an approach to God when he loved us and died for us, but equally I was totally lost, unable to find my way back to God when he died for us. See, the remarkable reality of God's love, what he says about Esau and Jacob, what he says about Eden and Israel, what he says about every one of us, is how do we know God loves us, that our father and our husband and our king loves us, is because while we were deserving to be hated, he alone loved us. Would we rather be receiving from God what we deserve, like Edom, wasteland, or receiving from God what we don't deserve, like Israel, peace and life and hope? See, the great good news, isn't it, of God's love for us is that Jesus accepts the hatred we deserve so that we might receive the love we don't deserve. It's great good news, isn't it? Can I take five more minutes and apply it? Is that all right? No one ever objects, do they? You could shout me down. I'll just shout out. No, you could shout me down. Can I give you just quickly four? Four quick applications Why understanding the love of God, understanding it not as about how I feel at this moment, and not understanding it as what my circumstances are like, because they lift like cloud cover and they come down as cloud cover, don't they? So not saying, does God love me depending on how I feel, or does God love me depending on what my circumstances are like. Don't do that. Instead, say, I know he loves me, because when I was still his enemies, Christ died for me. So I know it. Let me give you four new centres of gravity 
that introduces into the orbits of your life. Does that make sense? Four, I think. The first one is this, is humility. It should generate a massive humility. This Romans 5 passage is bookended in verse 5 and verse 11 by the little phrase, so we do not boast. Because actually, if God loved us and died for us and reconciled us, why we were enemies running as fast as we could in the opposite direction? There is nothing I can claim to have done to have been drawn back to God, can there? If it was while I was still powerless and unable to do anything, I cannot claim that I contributed in any way, shape or form to earning God's love, can I? And so it's remarkably daft, isn't it, if, if we start to give off a kind of persona or impression to folk, especially perhaps who don't agree with our faith or are having questions about it, and we give this impression that somehow it's to do with what I have achieved. It makes a mockery of actually what has occurred to us, doesn't it? A mockery of what has occurred to us. It's like me driving all the way to Scotland. So I did all the 280 odd miles up to Edinburgh in the car. The first two and a half hours we got 50 miles out of Stafford because the traffic was so bad. Yeah? Six odd hours in the car. And then we get there and Moses, who's a year old, suddenly miraculously can speak, turns to our friend in Scotland and says, yes, I drove us here. It's farcical, isn't it? Moses is powerless, he's too weak to drive. And actually he's my enemy because he spent half the journey screaming in my ear. He wasn't a help in any way, shape or form. And he was totally lost. Would you give him a map? Well, we'd be like Moses, arriving in Edinburgh, saying, I got us here. If we actually start in any way to give the impression that we did it, and God did it, wouldn't we? The second changing of orbits comes through assurance. If humility comes from we cannot do it, God did it, he loves us. Assurance is that we cannot lose it. We cannot lose it. Because actually, it's not about our love to God, which ebbs and flows, doesn't it? How much I love God is all about my feelings and circumstances, and it goes up and down like this. But it's not. It's about God's love for me, which never changes and never alters, and never shifts. And so we cannot, we cannot lose it. Think for a moment, if you're one of these wonderful people considering adoption, or who has adopted, you are fantastic. But think of that scenario for a moment. Who does the choosing in an adoption? It's never the child, is it? It's always the parent. So it is with God. We didn't choose him, he chose us. And that is really good news, isn't it? Because God's very character of love means he cannot unchoose what he has chosen. We can all the time, don't we? Sometimes I have a chat with Hannah about what we might have for dinner. We choose to have whatever, shepherd's pie. By 11 o'clock, my mind could have changed. I've unchosen shepherd's pie. But God's not like that, is he? He chose us. We cannot lose his love. It's why Romans 8, that wonderful passage in Romans 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God in Christ Jesus. If it was my love for God, all of those things could separate it, couldn't they? 
But if it's his love for me, none of them can break it. Third application, assurance is about we cannot lose it. Humility, we cannot do it. Life, I've put it, we cannot <coughs> ignore it. God's love is so enormous, so gigantic, that it begins to flow into and out of every aspect of who we are. It radically changes what we are. In Romans 12, Paul says... Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, God's love, offer your entire selves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, my maths might be right, or my biology might be right, but I think entire selves doesn't leave anything out. I don't think I can lop off my left toe or leave my right arm behind and say, that is not to be offered to God in response to love. We can't. It's everything, isn't it? Which is why often we talk about when we meet together like this, this is not worship. When we meet together like this, this is not worship. It is preparation, training and fueling for the worship that begins when we walk out the door. Because it's all of life, isn't it? In all its ups and downs and mundaneness and trickiness. I worship God here because his love is so all-encompassing. And then the last is praise. Understanding God's love means we cannot contain it. We cannot contain it. If you flip back to Malachi, we'll finish there. If you've still got to open, that would be great. If you haven't, it's page 960. But there's one sentence left of our little paragraph we're looking at this morning, sentence 5. Malachi 1, sentence 5, page 960, it says this. You will see it with your own eyes... And say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. See, there comes a point that God is alluding to here. There comes a point when we will see, we will see with our own eyes, that the unconditional love of God has been unleashed from the borders of Israel. It's no longer something that Israel is given by God, but Edom is not. Suddenly, with the coming of Jesus... It's unleashed, isn't it? And so, for example, the New Testament can tell us wonderfully, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't need to be a Jew from Israel anymore. Anyone now who calls on the Lord can be saved. And that is such good news, it should lead to praise. That's why it says, we will see it with our own eyes. You've seen it if you've trusted Jesus. You've seen his love unleashed if you've trusted Jesus. And therefore you will say, great is the Lord, beyond just the restricted borders of Israel. Let me finish with an illustration to bring it home. I have loved you, says the Lord. Go back to that image of adoption, because that's the word in the Bible, we're adopted as God's children. Imagine a parent goes into the adoption centre. How does it work at a human level? However good your heart is, this is how adoption works. You kind of watch the children or read about them and look at pictures. You have your criteria list and you're looking for the one who ticks the boxes that you have, aren't you? And you're saying, just that one I will love. That's how human adoption has to work. Heartbreaking. Just that one. God walks into the adoption house, the orphanage of our world, and he doesn't even bother to look a 
of whether you wipe your nose or wash your hands before tea or will get decent grades. He walks in and goes, I'll have you all! I'll have you all! In Jesus, no longer just the borders of Israel. There's space for you all in my house. Come and be my child. Through my son. Come on in. I'll adopt you. And that should not be containable, should it? Because if actually you've experienced having no mum and dad, and however good your foster home, or however good your orphanage was, if some great dad and mum walk in and scoop up every single one of you and put you into their beautiful home with its wild, crazy garden, every time you meet a child who's not yet been adopted, what are you going to say? Come and meet my daddy! Come and meet my daddy, won't you? He'll bring you in. He'll welcome you home. He'll love you. I have loved you, says the Lord. And you know it. Because when you deserve to be hated, I was the one who loved you and sent my son to die for you. While you were still God's enemies, Christ died for you. Let me pray for us. <coughs> Father, Abba Daddy, we, we want to thank you and praise you and love you and delight in you. And we want to call all the fatherless children, the parentless children, we want to yell at the top of their, our lungs, come and meet my daddy. Come and meet my father. He's got room for you. So help our hearts and our minds to know this unconditional electing, wonderful, purposeful love of God that even while we deserve to be hated, your love never ended. In Jesus' name, amen. I suggest we sit for a minute or two in quiet, recollect your thoughts, tangle one of them up in the net of your memory and take it home to nourish you for the afternoon. So let's just pause for a minute. Gather something up that God has placed in your mind. Tangle it up in your memory threads. Take it home to nourish you later. And then Matt's going to lead us in a couple of songs to, to close. We'll have our offering and those sorts of things in that.